0: back to the uh, C Reforms podcast. We are uh, very grateful to you for joining us for yet again another episode. Um, today we're going to be talking about uh, something that to many of you would be something pretty uh, familiar, for others maybe not familiar at all, we're going to be talking today about something called liturgical prayers. And what we mean by liturgical prayers is this, it's a, it's a, it's a prayer that is written down and that it is used on some kind of a regular basis. So, for example, you might want to think in your own life about the use of the Lord's Prayer. That is one a biblical example of a liturgical prayer. Or maybe the 150 Psalms. Those are sung prayers that are could be viewed as a liturgical prayer, um, and they can be used um, on regular occasions. Uh, one prayer that we use within our worship service might, again, provide you with another example of what we're talking about, that each, um, each Lord's Day in our service of the Lord's Supper, uh, we open with a prayer of invocation that um, has its roots probably in the 7th century, around the time of Gregory the Great, certainly by the 10th century. Um, it's called the uh, Collect for Purity. And it's, um, this is the, the prayer is this, it goes, Almighty God, to whom our hearts are open, our desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the gracious power of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. And some churches might use that and have just the minister or read that or our, in our context. Our entire congregation prays that in in unison, uh, corporately, but just wanna give you an idea of what exactly I mean, what we mean when we're talking here about uh, liturgical prayers. Um, So as we get into this, uh, I wanna begin with probably the concern that uh, might be creeping up into your mind, and it certainly creeps up into the mind of many who visit our church. As they see us doing that, and they hear us using these prayers that are written down, and the immediate rejection is, that's too Catholic, or are you guys Catholics, or something like that. And so, yeah. Brandon, maybe you could help us to begin to address that, because that might be a hurdle that some of our listeners are um, experiencing right now.
1: Yeah, for sure. It is, you know, common to get that charge, you know, well, that's a Catholic thing. How come you guys have this pre-written prayer down, and um, how come you guys are saying it all together? And it's almost contrasted with, you know, prayers from the heart or something like that, uh, which we'll get into. But um, it, it was helpful for me anyway when I was going back and, and, and really wanting to know about how did the early church, um, how did they, what did they do when they came together? What were they all about? And obviously we have some writings um, uh, from the ancient church and the church fathers that unpack some of those things, but even back in the Bible, we see what the early church was, was all about. So, for example, in Acts 2.42, it talks about how all the people were gathered together and they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to uh, the breaking of the bread, to the fellowship, and to the, to the prayers and it says that they were devoted t- to these things. And that word devoted there could even mean busied with. It was something that they were devoted to not only in terms of their heart devotion, but their time devotion. They gave a lot of time to um, the apostolic teaching of the word. They gave a lot of time to the Lord's Supper. They gave a lot of time to the fellowship. And then we hear that phrase to the prayers. And what's interesting is that uh, Luke doesn't write they and they prayed in like a general sense but he adds the article the they prayed THE prayers and it's interesting that he would he would say it that way and not in a more general way oh and by the way they prayed Um, but as you as you kind of start looking at the early church practices, some of what they did was actually repackage from Jewish practices. So for example, when the, when the Jews would come together um, in the synagogue, they would have prayers that they prayed every Saturday. Every Sabbath day, they had set prayers that were, that were prayed. And there could be different seasons and different prayers prayed for different seasons, but they had prayers and they would all pray it together and as the christian community was gathering on on the lord's day and they were coming praying um, the prayers uh, uh, they either took some of the old jewish prayers and maybe christianized them a bit or they wrote their own prayers but either way they were praying prayers and there was certain prayers that they would pray every time they came together the didache for example speaks about how they would pray the lord's prayer three times a day and so it was helpful for me early on as i'm like trying to wrestle with this you know is pre-written prayers are they good are are they okay it was interesting to see that that's probably what was happening here even in even as the church is is spreading out in its kind of infant stage here spreading out around the world uh post-christ it's interesting how how they're coming together and praying set prayers the prayers um, every single Lord's Day. So I think that that gives us some biblical background to warrant such uh, a practice in, in our churches. I, I think that um, to, to go
0: even one step further with this, it's notable that there in the book of Acts, you find the early church observing the third hour, the noon prayers, and the ninth hour mm-hmm. of prayers because that was the Jewish practice. The, the, and to connect the, the point with your... Um, you're mentioned the Didache, where the Didache speaks about praying the Lord's prayer three times a day. It's probably referring to the third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour prayers that were being offered up on a daily basis, and so that there would be those three structured times a day that Christians would then observe in continuity with their uh, their Jewish background, and so those kinds of that, that uh, approach to praying and having a set rhythm of a daily rhythm, even more than just the Lord's Day rhythm. Mm-hmm was uh, I think very much uh, in place. And I've been actually doing some, a little bit of reading about um, some of the background to uh, Lord's Supper liturgy. And one of the interesting things as I've been reading about that is they're talking about uh, what we know about the most, the most ancient um, uh, historical record about what we know about Jewish meal practices, just Jewish meal practices. Not even, not even like a Passover or a holy day, but they would even have set liturgical prayers to say at the normal meal that you had. As you would begin your meal and throughout the meal and your end of your meal, there would be set prayers that would be then offered up to saturate that entire meal with, uh, with prayers. And I think that, that also helps to maybe round out, fill out some of our view on what it was that Acts 2.42 right. is uh, speaking about with the prayers, because they were going not just the temple, but house to house as well, uh, right, to uh, to do these kinds of things. Right.
1: Uh, but bringing it back now to kind of our context here, yeah. here in the Reformed Church, how has the Reformed Church historically uh, engaged liturgical prayers? Is that a practice in the Reformed Churches?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess there might be a little bit of a difference depending on which lineage you come out of. Mm-hmm. I think if you um, come out of the modern day, you know, uh, American Presbyterian lineage, you're probably somewhat suspicious about it, because the Presbyterians had a bit of a reaction toward the um, Anglican imposition of a prayer book upon uh, the churches, and Mm -hmm. because the Anglicans and the Church of England and the government of England became very heavy-handed, from my vantage point, with the imposition of a prayer book, I think that led to a bit of a a pendulum swing, and um, the American Presbyterian tradition, I think, kind of gets away from those to a certain degree, not entirely, but to a certain degree. But I think that if you come to um, the uh, reformed churches from the mainland Europe, the continent of Europe, that uh, you you see churches who are much more at home with liturgical prayers, um, similar to the Lutheran tradition, yes, similar even to, Uh, aspects of the Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox traditions that liturgical prayers have found a home there and pastors would even write liturgical prayers for their um, congregants to use in their homes. So I think we have some really beautiful examples of a morning prayer and an evening prayer within the book that, um, that we have and we give to our members and encourage them to use in their homes so that as they begin the day they can read something. And they don't stop there, but they begin there. Mm-hmm. Um, other kinds of uh, prayers as well were written for the uh, for use at meal mealtimes, before meals and after meals, or for children at bedtimes. And these kinds of things are written down to aid in the uh, practice of prayer. Not to exhaust prayer. We're not opposed to praying from the heart, but to pre- uh, present something of a, a rhythm, a, r- a routine to to. Uh, ground us and to instruct mm-hmm. us and guide us, but that obviously finds its place into in the Reformed Church as well, which is why we have a book called Forms and Prayers that then provides us with prayers that can be used. It's not heavy-handed; you have to use this, right. but they can be used in our personal life and in our uh, our, our worship life. Yeah. But what, what else? Would you, what are your thoughts on that, Brandon? I mean,
1: no, yeah, I think that's great. Uh, it's interesting to see the two different, you know, how how having uh, something imposed upon you can always make you want to go in the opposite direction. So it was interesting mm-hmm. how different strands of the Reformed faith have uh, embraced or not embraced uh, to, to a certain degree, the, uh, the prayers. Um, but how would we answer then the, the charges against that? Because the moment you, you bring up liturgical prayers, you speak about you know um, pre-written prayers that you're going to read, on a piece of paper in corporate worship, or you're going to read it together in unison as the body of Christ, um, one of the biggest charges that you see is what Jesus said, do not pray in repetition. And every Sunday I come here, you're praying the same prayer in repetition. And so you're violating what Jesus said here. Uh, you're being like a Pharisee, they would say. So how would we respond to that charge that liturgical prayers violate that um, commandment of christ yeah yeah well <clears throat> that's uh you're referring there to
0: matthew 6 in the uh, sermon on the mount where jesus is teaching uh on the topic of prayer and i think that one of the unfortunate um realities of history is that the uh, king james version translates a, a term there as vain repetitions and that uh that phrase of vain repetitions has then um, really taken root in the hearts and minds of many uh, Americans. And then when something is then repeated, then that's just a label of vain repetition that uh, Jesus was of course addressing that. But I think that it was a poor translation really of, of something that is not referring to utilizing what we're calling the liturgical prayer. But Jesus in that context is addressing the, um, the error of Gentiles, not of Jews, He's not addressing and criticizing the Jews there who were already using repetition in their uh, daily life, in their Sabbath observance. He's addressing the Gentile practice of heaping up empty sounds and empty words. It's just the idea of of um, babble, of just saying random noises and making random statements, or perhaps just having a couple words you say on repeat, like, If someone were to pray, God, help me, 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 and just continue with that kind of a thing, that's the sort of a thing that the Gentiles were doing as they were trying to coerce and twist the arms of the uh, pagan deities that they weren't quite sure if they were hearing them, so they'd have Mm -hmm. to say over and over and over and over.
1: And even cut themselves.
0: Exactly. Think about the times of Elijah. Uh, when they had the uh, prophets of uh, Baal, like you said, yeah. cutting themselves and screaming and hollering and doing all this kind of random stuff to try to wake up the, uh, the gods who were apparently uh, napping at the time. But that's the kind of Gentile practice that Jesus was opposing because, I mean, he goes on to give them the Lord's Prayer. He gives them a prayer to be used right. <laughs> and to repeat so... Uh, This idea of vain repetitions, I think, really isn't um, at all what we're talking about here, but uh, sort of a stammer. Right. By the way, just to note for our listeners that Christ himself, at the end of Matthew's Gospel in the Garden of Gethsemane, he repeated the same prayer three times. And so... If repeating the same prayer is a bad thing, then you need to charge Jesus with sin. But thankfully, I don't think any of our listeners would do that. Mm-hmm. So just to make these notes, I think is yeah, helpful.
1: Yeah, no, that's helpful. What do you
0: think, Brandon? About uh, one charge that I think of in my mind is people want to say that when you do this, you're just mindlessly going through these um, going through these motions, mm-hmm. and so by using liturgical prayers, you're just Allowing people to go through the motions, yeah, just be mindless about it What, what, what do you think about that?
1: Sure, yeah, um uh, that is a common charge you know if, if all you do is read prayers on a piece of paper, then you know, your heart's not in it, your mouth is moving, that you know that kind of thing, but that could be true with prayers that are not written on a piece of paper, you know uh, oftentimes, people who are adverse to having a liturgical prayer. They say the same prayer at mealtime. They say the same prayer at bedtime. They they offer up the same prayers that they made that they themselves made up. Um, people who say, "Well, I don't do pre-written prayers," but then you say pray over dinner, and it's the same prayer over and over and over again. Um, so I don't think that the charge uh, that you're that it's a mindless thing can only be labeled or can only be right. stuck on a liturgical prayer it could be stuck on any prayer really uh, that would be more of a hard issue but liturgical prayers I think are um, are actually much more uh, rich uh, in terms of in terms of their their beauty and their depth and what they're what they're saying so for example you know when I was when I was a child and I was making up my own uh prayer at night and I would say the same prayer at night it wasn't very rich it wasn't deep at all it was it was very shallow and and because it was so shallow, I was able to kind of say it mindlessly and go off to bed. But when you go into a liturgical prayer that's well thought out, it's theologically grounded, it's saying beautiful things that I probably on the spot maybe would not have even thought of saying, but I wanna say them because it's so beautiful and so true and I believe it. And actually I find myself reading a liturgical prayer and being almost inspired in a way that I wanna pray, I wanna continue in prayer. In fact, I would usually start my prayer time with a liturgical prayer and then from the liturgical prayer move on into my own prayers, but that was just a a beautiful way to be gripped by ways in which we can pray and glorify God and, and, and speak about the wonders of the three-in-one and the one-in-three, and, and some of these liturgical prayers are just so beautiful in how it unpacks the Trinity, how, how it unpacks Christ and Christ's love for us, and so, um, I, yeah, I don't think that it can just be charged as this mindless thing. I actually think it inspires the heart to uh, be more affectionate in our prayers to Christ, <laughs> Um, any other thoughts you want to add to that? I think that you're
0: you're, you're spot on with a lot of that and uh, again just to reaffirm what you said that we don't stop with liturgical prayers but I think it's helpful to start there Oftentimes, mm-hmm. yeah. I think that we're so given to become slaves to the, our own moments mm-hmm. like this is how I'm feeling right now this is what I want right now and those kinds of passions enslave us and that kind of can grip our prayer life to not pray what we should pray. Mm-hmm. We just pray what we have the urge to pray in the moment. And of course, there are things in the moment we should pray for, but to your point about having some reflection upon a prayer, that it takes us outside of ourselves to think about what does the Bible teach me to pray for, as long as it's a good liturgical prayer. Mm-hmm. I can imagine there being some you know, unfaithful, Uh, you know, denomination or something that composes some liturgical prayer that's complete trash, right? Mm -hmm. We're not saying every liturgical prayer is good, but one that's thoughtfully and biblically crafted Mm -hmm. takes us outside of the enslavement to our passions and the enslavement to the moment Mm -hmm. and helps us to pray as Christ would have us to pray rather than just as I in my own moment want to pray which might be full of sin and selfishness, for example.
1: It's also, I think, helpful to note, too, that in several of our liturgical prayers, there's actually a section in there where it invites you to pray. Mm -hmm. So if you're praying, I think, the evening prayer, for example. There's a section where we pray for those who are grieving, and so we list people, and we name problems and various issues that are going on with people um, that we know, or in our lives, or in the world, and then we jump right back into the liturgical prayer and round it out. And So it's not this either-or, like either I pray from the heart, or I pray this pre-written prayer, but there's a, a, a good balance, I think, of both. But there's Another charge, Mm Zach, that people um, often make, and they'll say, well, it's it's just too ritualistic, it's too rhythmic, Um, shouldn't we in our Christian life just be spontaneous and guessing about, you know, just kind of keep things fresh? Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that there is something to be said for allowing, to, to not have only liturgical prayers, as we've already said, and I hope that when we think about, you know, like our own church's worship, there are two particular prayers where, you know, you and I pray in response to the sermon by way of application, and we make specific application of the sermon to the congregation, and we intercede as well for the surrounding world, and we don't have an exact prayer that we're using there, a liturgical prayer, but mm-hmm. we pray... Um, it, more to a certain degree from the heart, although I think that we both plan that out, what we're gonna be praying in that time. Uh, but it's not the same thing week after week, right? And so I think that there's an element to say, yeah, we, we, we need to be able to pray about specific circumstances, specific needs, that kind of thing. But I, I do think though that that, uh, that rhythmic nature is something not to be spurning quite so so quickly. Because the rhythms of worship really have a a very powerful impact upon us, even if we're not aware of it. I oftentimes like to speak about the way that, you know, water dripping down upon a rock, in the moment you're not seeing any change that occurs upon it. But over the course of time, that water dripping on the rock actually shapes the rock and changes the rock. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that I would like to speak about the worship that occurs in that rhythmic sense that our rock hard hearts over the course of time, they become shaped and molded by that dripping water of the rhythmic worship service that leads us in that cadence of guilt and grace and gratitude and that shepherds us gradually and and slowly through the uh, various biblical needs and petitions that we need to offer up. And so really, it's a very powerful thing I think to To be part of something like that, it's a very unifying thing. I think also mm-hmm. to have that uh, uh, ritual undertaking, because you have a, the entire corporate church as a whole. Um, I think I, I enjoy, I love having the the congregation saying a prayer together corporately, because you're it's it's a it's a unity that you're hearing. Mm-hmm. You're hearing your brothers and sisters in in ritual speaking together. You're, you're seeing everyone acting together as one body. It's not only one pastor praying on behalf of everyone, but everyone's all together in this with one another. And I think that uh, has a very unifying effect upon uh, upon a church, especially in a time when the church can be prone to so much division. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that idea of a corporate ritual and a corporate prayer being offered up has uh, sort of a subversive effect against the the. Inclination toward schism and disunity, but it uh, really I think can can bring us together in a very
1: powerful way mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah,
0: what were your thoughts on that?
1: I think it's helpful. and it's, it's, it's a good way to keep us engaged I mean oftentimes if you're if you're in churches where um, Only only the pastor prays for example um, You know he might you know he might invite us all to pray together and kind of join our mm-hmm. hearts in prayer but you know if you're like me and the prayer goes a bit, you know, our minds are wondering, and you know, I'm thinking about other stuff or whatever it is. But having times of liturgical prayer, we're engaged together, we're united together, we're saying the same things together. Our hearts are definitely in in unison as we're as we're t- speaking about the exact same things. We're bringing the exact same things to God, and yeah, I, I like how you how you said that it really unifies the the body.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, one more thing, maybe just I'm Um, think about here too is that I think a lot of the time when people uh, don't have the experience of a liturgical prayer within their worship I think it's often the case where their worship service might only have two prayers whereas if you I'm not I'm not even sure how many prayers our communion service has in it but I would probably say up to ten prayers that are included within it not including the singing Um, I'm sure at least eight yeah and so I think that that kind of a context where you have more praying going on and more opportunities for prayer, that it's not taking away from what a pastor might do within maybe a Presbyterian context or a Baptistic context, but really what's doing is adding those other places throughout the service where a liturgical component is being inserted to create the, a sense of movement and, and mm-hmm. drama that's according to the biblical shape. So yeah, that's right. Oh, is that that probably fair for your experience too?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, um, yeah, when, when you talk about bringing on board, for example, a liturgical service or prayer rather, um, one of the charges is well so now we're just going to pray that and now we're not going to and it's like no you can you can add other prayers mm-hmm. um at a previous church when i was bringing in more li- liturgical prayers i still maintain the 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 prayer of intercession where i would pray on behalf of the congregation and, and that kind of thing but we would add other prayers where we could all come together and pray a for example a confession of sin or something like that yeah well good so
0: yeah. any other thoughts brandon on this topic yeah all right well um Thanks again for joining us uh, this week on the uh, Cincy Reform Podcast. We are a sponsored by Westside Reform Church, and so we hope that uh, you check out these episodes, share them with other people. Please rate us uh, well; we appreciate. Check out our church as well, WestsideReformed.org. I'm here with uh, my co-pastor Brandon Burks. I'm Zach Wise. Uh, great to be with you today. Hope it's been helpful for you. Thanks.